Hello and welcome back to the Comic Literate Podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, penny dreadfuls, web comics, newspaper comics, essentially any single frame illustrations where the characters use bubbles to talk or think. I'm your host, the soon-to-be known as Comic Stan, and with me as always is my personable co-host, it's Jamie. Personable? Yeah, it's a new one every week. You Last know. week was gregarious though, and I feel like gregarious is more of a crescendo than personable. Well, I'm going through the thesaurus list of uh, extroverted, and then yep. once we've got through that, I'm going to use a other descriptive word as like a, a, a starter, and then go through others. So I'll use like, you know, talkative or jolly or... Gobby. Eh, I mean, that's more urban slang, isn't it? Like, I mean, uh, like British urban slang. You know, like, oh, you gobshite, like that kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, I am a gobshite. I mean, who isn't a gobshite <laughs> in this day and age, really? Uh, so back to the comic, back to the podcast and all the goodness. Uh, luckily, no news, which basically is code at this point for no one died. Absolutely. And or nothing uh, Alan Moore has said that has made the news at all. Has he not said anything this week? Uh, there, things get reposted that he said before, <laughs> but you know, nothing like groundbreaking or new or anything. And I think it's going to be a while before we get another one of his like adaptations or anything. So yeah, maybe. Especially what he's like about them. But <laughs> I did, I did hear in retrospect the the um the guy who uh, uh redid the Watchmen uh yeah. did the HBO series, which was very good. I really enjoyed as a fan of the Watchmen. And everything I thought it was a good continuation. Mm. But apparently, the way he approached Alan was he sent him like a letter. And the letter was basically like, hi, I'm the guy who's destroying your work at Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking like a bit of edgelord humor was going to do it. <laughs> Didn't work, did it? No, apparently more was like, that wasn't a good start. <laughs> <laughs> you know how he is, old curmudgeon, who we love and adore because he's one of the best. He's one of the greats and he has an open invitation to come sit in my living room with us. Exactly. Oh man, he'd love it here. This would be his, like, his, uh, he probably has a, a disorganized bookshelf exactly like yours, I bet. Shelves. <laughs> Shelf. What did I say? Store? Well, I mean, the problem is, if I only had one disorganized bookshelf, life would be good, but there are many. I feel like you're the kind of person who would benefit, like, who would enjoy more disorganized bookshelves. Like, the if you had a bigger house, you would have more rooms filled with disorganized bookshelves. Because I don't have enough shelf space and there are piles forming on top of the shelves. Right. It's so disorganized that occasionally we have a tumble of first editions in this house. I can imagine that like a proper, like an avalanche scenario. It's like where it's like, everyone's like, shh, stop. Listen. Yeah. It's like you hear a rumbling in the distance, like <laughs> avalanche. It's like books just piling down. That's exactly how it happens. You're like the like the Scrooge McDuck, but with books instead of <laughs> coins, and easily as painful if you dived into it from a springboard. I would imagine so. Yeah, the, the paper cuts are plenty. I, I would imagine oh, it would be awful, particularly as most of them are hardbacks. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to dive in a pool full of books? Are they paperback or hardback? <laughs> Are we talking comic books here or <laughs> oh, books comic with books, no you, pictures? You'd get just some like light paper cuts, but not really. <laughs> I think if you cut, if you get a paper cut from a comic book, I'm sorry to say you're probably not going to make it in life. I think it's <laughs> hard, like hardcover books are like prime for paper cuts. Absolutely, I agree. Do you know the science of paper cuts? Why they hurt so much? No. A little bit tidbit, a little bit of uh, information. So what it is when you get a paper cut, normally with a so with a normal cut, if you start bleeding the blood actually covers like the nerves and stuff but a paper cut normally without any blood the nerves are more exposed to the air so it seems like paper cuts hurt more than regular oh, cuts okay for that reason 
and you know we're a comic book podcast we might as well talk about the, the science of <laughs> the minutia of paper cuts yeah exactly so we've got i think a bigger um i keep saying this i keep like either say we've got a big episode and there's a big episode or i say we've got a short episode and, and it's, it's a big, a big episode, episode anyway yeah we got a big one, so we're gonna speed through the uh, the the earlier the corners as we the, yep. the two corners of the shape that we are that the podcast is somehow that only has two corners, which a, makes it a line. No, it's half a square. So because uh, a, a line a has no corners, yeah. So if you cut a square in half and it's like an upside down U shape, or it could be like so it's a, a like half a circle almost. Yeah, only square, because circles don't have corners. Would we say it's more like an oval, but with, like, sharper points at the side? So it's like, so, like, you know, like a smile, but it's like two of those, so like a smile and a frown upside down. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, we're really getting in the listeners with the the shapes, (laughs) discussion of shapes and what has corners or not. So should we start with um, comic books that move so fast that the picture moves corner? Yes. Oh, yeah. I'll start with that. Um, so I have, I've watched a couple of things. I debated what to, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the choice what you want me to talk about. So I, I watched two things primarily. One was a um, film that might be construed as a horror film, might not, but it was the latest one from David Cronenberg. Okay. Uh, that, or I could talk about a Netflix series I watched called The Watcher, which came out like last year. I only just got around to it this time. Basically, I've got two negative things to talk about oh so. let's talk about mr cronenberg and All his right. negative thing so there was a film came out called the Cri- uh, crimes of the future and it's it was the big new david cronenberg film that he kind of he, his passion project he wrote he directed and cronenberg if anyone doesn't know he's famous for um gore and disgusting things but with amazing practical effects like that's what he's mainly known for um big biggest ones that were uh, scanners where the guy's head exploded that was like a big famous one where a guy sitting at a desk and his head explodes yeah and the other one um was the fly okay the the, yeah. the um, what's the name the actor you know who i mean quirky guy he was like a f- serious actor now he's just like a, he walks around going like like that you know what i mean no uh, he's in jurassic park um the Oh, Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum, Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, so he was a, like a he was like a leading man, handsome guy at <laughs> yeah. the start, and now he just walks around going like, "That's oh, uh, I'm uh, Jeff Goldblum." Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 he yeah. says that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course he does. <laughs> constantly identifies himself. <laughs> I think, but um, yeah, the fly was a big one, big transformation to a monster, but all practical effects before CGI. So mm. the new one, it was the the plot is that it's the future, and humans have evolved to a point where one, they don't feel pain anymore, Great. so that's just gone completely. And humans are starting to evolve extra organs. Okay. Not extremities or limbs, but just internal organs. organs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it follows the the main characters uh, played by Viggo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. And he is a performance artist. And his performance is in front of a crowd. Um, they <laughs> basically remove an organ from him, like live in front of an audience. Just a completely superfluous one that he doesn't actually need. So he's grown a new one and the art is him the, the his woman the woman he works with, I can't remember her name, she's a French actress, I think. Um, but she is like the orchestra or who's the who's the orchestra who does the the waves the wand? You know conductor. conductor. She's kind of the conductor but with like a machine that takes the stuff out of him. Okay. And because he doesn't feel pain, he's just like awake during it and and whatever. Um, and it's it kind of goes into like evolution as a crime where mm. like people that the the government are trying to stop people from growing these extra organs because they don't know what they're gonna do and 
whether humans should be allowed to evolve at this stage or not, whatever. Mm. Mainly Cronenberg and organ removal. You think that's going to be awesome because it's going to be, mm. you know, lots of cool looking gore and stuff. And unfortunately, it's pretty dull. Oh, okay. It, and I, you, from the plot I've just given, you would not think something like that would be dull. Hmm. But it's all like beige and brown, like everything is. There's machines that look kind of like bone and extremities right. and stuff. And you would think on paper it sounds like interesting, but it's just so bland and boring. And there's, there's just like, there's a subplot about like a kid who's grown a stomach and can eat plastic or something. And that's going to be like the next evolution. And it just kind of peters out without much happening and stuff. <laughs> and yeah, that's an interesting story. It's an interesting story, but I just, it was told in a way. And the guy, the, the Vigo Mortensen, who's the, the performance artist, he's like working with a, a, a police department that's investigating all this but <laughs> and i don't know it's there's there's a quite a few moments of female nudity that just seem completely pointless or just completely like ah they're, they're naked for the to get in the machine thing it's like all right is it just a bit gratuitous a little gratuitous yeah until like i'm here for the gore like I, you know yeah like i, <laughs> I thought, can see titties anywhere exactly and also you got vigo mortison naked in a machine never once see his dick and i'm like well, that's a wasted opportunity. Exactly. I you bet know, he's got a nice one. He probably, even he's probably got a very normal one. You know, a very nice normal one. And you know, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna show some female nudity, at least get some cock out for <laughs> for the people who would enjoy that. You yeah, know? absolutely. I don't think anybody enjoys looking at cock, even people who like cock. I no, think I think like that's it. a yeah. But but if someone's like, do you want to see Vigo Mortensen's dick? I'd be like, yeah, all right, then. all right. Yeah, that's yeah, a Google have, search I'd do. Let's have a look. Let's have a see. <laughs> Incidentally, have you ever seen Willem Dafoe's penis? Yeah, because he got it out in something he did, didn't he? Years ago, he was in like, like I think like college, he was in like a black yeah. and white thing where he was just dancing naked. And um, yeah, it's huge. Like, Yeah, he's got a schlong, hasn't he? Yeah, I'm not surprised that he's so confident and such a good actor <laughs> as he is. Like, I, I think I might be, but this is beyond the point. Do you think there's a the... correlation there? I mean, maybe, I don't know, but... I mean, this is a different podcast entirely, but talking about the, the generals of actors, but <laughs> which maybe once we've got a Patreon, that'll be like a behind a paywall, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. How it depends how successful this one goes. Yeah. But one thing that was interesting to me was the reason I looked up the Cronenberg one is because there's a another film I saw last year by his son, who's also a director, maybe writer director. I'm not sure. I think it's off the top of my head, I think it's Jason Cronenberg or okay. something. Something Cronenberg, it's his son. But he made a horror film called Possessor, and that's one of my favourite horror films. It's really good. And I thought it was going to be like gore and stuff, but it's what I would describe as like psychological gore, yeah, if that okay. makes sense. It's like about the mind and the, the violence and breaking of the mind as opposed to the body. Yeah. So if you want something really out there, like a really kind of breaking new ground horror film, Possessor, it's really good. Awesome. So that's my corner, and now we slide along shiftily to Jamie's comic books with way too many words and no pictures corner. Yeah, which weirdly is going to go straight back to penises. What is this? The this is the theme of, of today. today's episode. Um, so I've been reading the 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 Hollow Land, the Book of Norfolk folklore, on and off. Right, but I um I joined in with the unwashed masses in their droves, Ryan. This sounds. Probably sketchier than it is, but I'm gonna I'm let you continue. Currently I... reading Spare. Okay. Oh like, right, yeah. Prince Harry's book. Okay, yeah. Um, and yeah, there's there's this there's the part where 
he's got frostbite on his todger and he right. opens up this cream and it reminds him of his mum because <laughs> it's a, he, so he's applying this cream to his mum. No, that's not what happened. The, do we cut that or do we leave that in? I think we leave it in, mate. <laughs> okay. He's applying this cream to his frostbitten penis. Right. At his brother's wedding or around the time of, of Will's wedding. And suddenly he's overwhelmed with these feelings about his mum. But it's because it's a cream that she used. Right. And he hadn't smelled it since the 90s when she was still alive. Um, and I think that one moment, is a, it perfectly encapsulates the book because the news media have grabbed hold of it and tried to make him look like a complete fucking weirdo. And they've taken it out of context. And that is literally what the book is about. The book is about the way in which the news media have attempted to control Prince Harry through his entire life. And by extension now, him and Meghan as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so he goes into really great detail about, you know, the, his, his minor peccadilloes at Eton and the way that his schoolboy errors would be reported on. He shaved his head once as like a 15-year-old boy and it became front page news. And that just shouldn't be the case despite being royal. Yeah, there's definitely uh, the, the modern age of celebrity and how much they're followed. I think that is turned up somewhat for royalty and royal families. Yeah, and because the, the I don't know if you know this, but the news media have a rotation for the royals because it's only considered fair that they get a fair crack at them. And so over any given month during the year, a newspaper will have first dibs on any royal news, which means that the papers are trying to capitalise on their time period where they get the scoop. Right. So it's even more in-depth and yeah, intensive. And so, exactly. And so, you know, how, you know, one of the princes would shave their head or get caught smoking weed or wear a Nazi costume to a party. Yeah, that, that one I will be like, yeah, probably should have done that one. I think the most interesting thing about that one is that Prince William not only encouraged it, but requested it. Right. So they were going to a party that was colonizers and natives. It was like a fancy dress party themed around colonizers and natives. I mean, that is already a bad start, isn't it? Isn't it just the upper classes at play doing something cunty? And I, we probably would never have known about it if it wasn't for the costume. Well, and this is the thing. So the photograph was sold to the papers because Prince William was wearing a silly leotard. And somebody at the newspaper caught Prince Harry with his swastika in the background. But he went to a fancy dress shop, called his brother from the shop and said, look, they've got this and this. Which one do I pick? And I'm struggling with the concept right now of a prince of royalty going into like a, a costume shop on the high street being like, have you got any wigs or funny glasses? Uh, well, like this is exactly what happened. And then, yeah, his brother, he said, like, they've got this Nazi uniform and they've got, like, a safari uniform. And his brother was like, you have to go as the Nazi. It'll be hilarious. And so he got railed for that. Fairly so. Yeah. He did a stupid Un understandably. thing. Understandably. But he did a stupid thing that was sanctioned by the most senior royal, which in their world is kind of the, the, air, the air or the, the reigning monarch in the air are the most important people. Yeah. If one of the pe people in the direct line of succession tells you to do something, you kind of just get on with it. Well, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and I'm going to say any uh, person going to a costume party dressed as a Nazi, the members of the royal family go on a limb and say they probably wouldn't give a shit themselves. It was only when the public backlash, they yeah. were like, oh, oh yeah, oh no, that was bad. I didn't like that at all. And yeah, and it just, it just goes into so much detail about the way that 
how he was treated by his own family in the news media. And again, he's an incredibly privileged person. Yes. Um, and so I don't, I don't, he's not looking for pity, but he's just looking to present the facts of his life in a way in, in it. He's looking to take back control of the narrative of his own life, which I think is really fascinating. And it's when his great uncle um, gave up the throne, he never got that opportunity. He, well, he actually was a fucking Nazi, though. Right. Um, but he never got that opportunity because the royals still had a bit more control. But we're now, in a, we're now in a period of time where actually they don't and he's able to do that. And I just think it's a very interesting read. Mm. It's definitely worthwhile. I'm enjoying it a lot. I will say as someone who's not read, I've seen the headlines and I've, I've, I'm not really, I don't really keep up with the royals at all. I think they're kind of pointless as an institution. But seeing some of the stuff out from the outside, Harry does seem to be one of the more down-to-earth members of the royal family. But also... Uh, what is important to recognize is the bar is pretty fucking low for being yeah, normal of the absolutely. being as close to normal as possible in the royal family because they are all insane people they are a bit bat crap crazy aren't they yep and you know prince andrew they protected him that's you know that's the whole other thing which <laughs> please feel free if you want to laugh watch his interview i think i was like news night or something where he was like i'm gonna sort out all this epstein stuff and it's all gonna be blown <laughs> over by tomorrow and they're just like uh, i can't sweat and i was in a pizza express and everyone's like what are you doing <laughs> you're a sweaty nonce go away <laughs> yeah, i can see you sweating now <laughs> so that's a good one that's a it's very it's a it's a good interview but sounds like an interesting book um yeah i'm enjoying it yeah yeah it's uh it's it's interesting and speaking of interesting books see that Awesome segue oh, right I there. It. I live for it. It was a good segue. We, this week, this episode, are delving into, um, we're kind of doing a rotation of older and newer yeah. um, titles. The newer titles, we obviously want to be kind of at the forefront of what's happening with comics now. But it's also important to pay attention to the the bigger titles that came before and now influence this generation. I think this is a very good one for influencing um culture. culture dialogue character portrayal um generations and different generations of of kids and things like that we are talking about scott pilgrim the canadian uh title yeah. uh, written and hang on i've got all the information here um written you, by brian k o'malley yes is it brian k or is it brian o'malley or is think, it just brian am i thinking brian k vaughan brian k vaughan who is also an amazing comic I book think, writer i think so. it, i think you're right it might just be brian o'malley i i've got here i believe Brian Lee O'Malley. So it's the Lee uh, and the K that you might have. Uh, yeah. So I've got the blurb. Do you want me to give it the old um, movie trailer voiceover? Oh, go on then. Ah, you indulge me every time when you allow me to do this. Do. Also, I'm making a reel so I can send it to whoever makes the trailers for films. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you listen to all this I've, I've done already. So <clears throat> Scott Pilgrim is a series of graphic novels by Canadian author and comic book artist Brian Lee O'Malley and released in 2004. The series is about Scott Pilgrim, a slacker and part-time musician who lives in Toronto, Ontario, and plays bass in a band. He falls in love with American delivery girl Ramona Flowers, but must defeat her seven evil exes in order to date her in peace. So that's very simple. Uh, well done. Yeah, yeah. That was good. Um, and so I read this years ago. Yes. In its entirety. That's probably one thing we should start, I was going to say, was how what drew you to reading it? Because obviously I've read it now on your recommendation and for this episode. So what drew you initially to it? The music connection. Okay. It was a comic book about a musician. And I read it in my early 20s as a guitar player who hated his fucking job and was a bit slack 
and kind of had had a certain amount of arrested development in some areas as opposed to now <laughs> where you're not a fan. when i really have all of my shit together you just don't play guitar as much anymore. <laughs> that's the only difference because i don't have time yeah um yeah so i kind of identified with the protagonist a little bit unfortunately well that's one thing i noticed uh, uh earlier on and also just reading the blurb is the slacker character trope which is something we touched on quite a bit in uh why the last man mm. and i think this from a similar era i think why the last man started like late very late 90s like 99 yeah. or something um and this 2004 again calling back to like the with uh, why the last man uh the kevin smith era of slacker films mm. and also the film that inspired him called literally slacker yeah but this is prime from that generation of slacker characters and there was just an entire generation of people our age who were disaffected youths yeah. who didn't have much going for them there was nothing major going on in society that you know gave us a reason to do anything almost so we drew to these characters because this this we they were the inspiration uh we were the inspiration for these slacker characters and this is one of the prime examples of that i think yeah absolutely and you know good observation on my part i was mm. a little self pat on the back um so creator brian o'malley uh brian lee o'malley uh was apparently actually inspired to create the series an eponymous character of scott pilgrim after listening to canadian band plum trees 1998 single scott pilgrim a song then plum tree singer carla gillis described as positive but also bittersweet which i think is a is a very good translation yeah. for the comic book um in particular o'malley was inspired by the lyric i've liked you for a thousand years so uh i think that is the tone that is uh is you know uh developed in this in this series finally he nailed it didn't he yeah uh it's it's that it's that again the slacker finding meaning in things like the music they're listening to more than the world at large yeah and especially the character being in a band as well there's it's very centered around that as well yeah absolutely and you notice with scott that you notice with Scott that so much of what drives him is internal and that the out he's seldom actually in the outside world, isn't he? He sleeps until late into the day and he doesn't have a great grasp on reality in as much as actually we're presented with a fairly standard non-fantasy world. And when weird things start happening in the shape of Ramona Flowers turning up and being able to open magical doors, he's just like cool <laughs> well it's it's interesting because the the there is a a bit of a balance between weird stuff happening and scott going oh my god that's weird and then other weird stuff happening i'm going oh no this i'll roll with it like <laughs> but it it kind of picks and chooses what is yeah. and isn't um we'll start off from the top saying as well that we are going to be covering i guess volumes one to three kind of yeah, yeah it I was mean... two and a bit of three i guess uh we were originally i think just going to do one and then I had a bit of extra time on my hands, so I messaged you like, I've done two. And you're like, oh, gee, I've got to do that now. And then I was like, I've done three. And you were like, hold on. Like, so Did you like it then? Did you enjoy yeah, it that much? Yeah, I, I liked it. And I, I, I knew that. So my uh, coming into this was I saw the film uh, mm. about 10 years ago when it came out, 2012. And that I saw that, liked it, and then haven't touched it again for till now, pretty much. Yeah. Um, I've rewatched a bit of the film, um, but what I knew from the film was that it, it, the volumes were definitely centered around the stages of the evil exes. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one thing that, yeah, the seven evil exes, um, it does seem to be the cornerstone of the entire series and the story. 
Um, the other major thing as well is this, uh, the title is, the entire story is very co- uh, comic book. It's very video game centric mm. as well, which is an interesting, now that I think about it, it's interesting. It's music based and it's video game based, yeah. which again, two like the biggest slacker things. Like what are you doing? Yeah. Listen to music and playing video games. Absolutely. So it's kind of interesting that it follows those two things exactly. Yeah. And it's very mid noughties yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the, that was when video games were coming into their own as like a the mainstream yeah. thing. So yeah, I mean, you think the PlayStation One came out in ninety nine? Yeah, around then. Yeah, and that's the point where video games became a mass media. I'd say it definitely mainstream. So once the the consoles, the home consoles, um, became a bit better from like your classic two um, D. Yeah. So PlayStation One was the first kind of three D, and it was like block characters and. The, the the thing that sums up best is um tomb raiders triangle tits like i that. mean i'm sure there are some sega genesis fans out there that who would disagree with you but yeah well those but those fans they weren't like you couldn't just go out and be like hey who else is playing sega genesis like Absolutely. you were you that was a niche community yeah no the playstation one was a huge selling console it was affordable and attainable in a way that early segas and nintendos weren't exactly and it, playstation had um there was obviously Nintendo adverts and stuff beforehand. Sega and Nintendo had like a bit of a back and forward war. Yeah. But I feel like PlayStation being Sony was like the big... So Nintendo and Sega, they were, as far as I'm aware, I might be wrong about this, but they were like video game centric companies. Like we make video yes. games. Nintendo initially actually started out in the late 19th century, very late 19th century as a, a board... No, a... Um, they made playing cards. Playing cards. Yes, exactly. But they were game centric. Yeah. Whereas Sony was already an established electronics company i think so them releasing the playstation was like the big dog has now entered the industry kind of thing and so sega largely went bust releasing the genesis mm. to the extent that they had to let playstation advertise at their launch for the genesis right and they weren't a real competitor to the playstation not not in any functional way and so it was the first time that a single console had as much share of the market mm. As it did because PlayStation had most of the market share until Xbox came out. Oh, yeah, for sure. And even then, the original Xbox wasn't a serious competitor to the PlayStation, I would argue. I would say the original Xbox was because of specific titles, uh, mainly like Halo. That was a a first one, and that became quite well-known. Microsoft had a good standing because they obviously Windows and then created the Xbox, so they um, had a good start. Um, Definitely took Sega off the map and nintendo they always kept their kind of niche they came back in prominence with they stayed with the game boy they always had the game boy run along but but the, the wii the wii was the big one they came back to and that was the generation of playstation 3 xbox 360 and the wii were like considered the three um corners of the market but i think what's interesting about this is that the era of video games that it's drawing on is something earlier than yes and there are things there are aspects that do come and go as the industry goes on like there's a bit in one of the uh, issues where after Scott beats one of the exes, he gets he wins a life. Yeah, and that's something that comes and goes. In, yeah, in so what you'll ha- you'll they were very prime in the kind of PlayStation One era, and then they started to go in favor of the lingo, and it's like um not quite like health bars obviously replaced lives. Yeah, and then health bars became like 
I don't know what the term is, but it was like a health threshold where you could take some damage. Yeah. And then you could go back and like recover a bit and then come out again. The idea of getting a life back was more prominent in games that didn't have a save state. Yeah. So arcade uh, quarters and nickels in America, that kind of thing. Yeah, because it didn't have a save state. So you didn't have a place you could restart from. And so getting a life was getting a life. You were extra getting one, time. Yeah, you were getting one more pop at it, weren't you? Extra time for for no extra cost. Absolutely. Which was yeah. the big thing. Interestingly, that was there was a big thing about the um the Lion King game. That was that was on PlayStation One. Uh, Notoriously difficult. That was on Sega Mega Drive. Oh, Sega Mega Drive. Oh, it was on PlayStation as well, because I, I played it. The 2D side scroller, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I have a copy. And you know why that's so difficult? So that you couldn't finish it in a weekend rental period. Not just that, it was also um, based on the original arcade thing. So for for a similar reason, the arcade where you would pay, pay money to keep playing. Yeah. And it was that kind of, that followed on as well. And obviously a, a bar, helpful byproduct was people were renting games. Well, I thought that was the explicit purpose. I don't know. We might, we might have we might be crossed. stories. But yeah, no, I always heard that they made that game as difficult as they could so that you couldn't finish it in a weekend rental period. So you'd I mean, have to rent another copy. They're both equally devious, <laughs> devious reasons for the kids being like, I could finally play the Lanky game and then like busting controllers because they're so pissed off. Do you know who made that? Not off the top of my head. Virgin. Wow. Virgin <laughs> Virgin Games. Virgin done everything. They've done a bit of everything. Yeah. Good old Richard Branson. Yeah. So it is a it is a good title. I like say up top I re- enjoyed it. Um the main thing I noticed immediately is the dialogue is this is one of the earliest uh comics I think that no this is the earliest comics that had like a millennial young millennial yeah. dialogue which i think did become i recognized it as whedon-esque mm. which unfortunately is not a great name to reference these days because he's not a good bloke but yeah. he did kind of popularize a kind of quippy dialogue which is now become the cornerstone of the mcu because of how yes. he, he did it in the avengers and to an extent um john favreau in the first iron man film yeah. and that but that started in like the Buffy, the Vampire Slayer series, and also Gilmore Girls. It's a bit kind of that as well, yeah. which I might, I'm just pulling very specific references. I'm sure other people will read other ones. Yeah, I mean, Gilmore Girls has a really kind of inherent intellectualism to it, doesn't it? Because they speak so fast. They speak so fast, and also one of the characters is pitted as being very, very clever. And so yeah. there's this in it. There, there's, there's, uh, I always see Gilmore Girls as being quite firmly rooted in like the 20th century literature, American tradition. Yeah. I mean, just, just on a character meant to be intelligent, like the characters yeah. of the Big Bang Theory are meant to be intelligent. And that oh, show is dumb as garbage, yeah. isn't it? It's one of the worst. Uh, yeah. No, the Big Bang Theory is a great example of dumb TV about smart people. Yes. Whereas smart TV about sm- for smart people. Well, not even necessarily smart people, but just a bit smarter. Um, I would say the good version of Big Bang Theory is a show called Silicon Valley. Oh, I loved Silicon Valley. Very, very unique. Very, well, not even unique, but just a, a realistic portrayal of nerds. Specifically, the the Silicon Valley tech yeah. investor, um, uh, entrepreneur kind of nerd. Yeah, I love that scene where one of them goes into the desert and does acid for inspiration. Yes, to come up with the name <laughs> for the my the best scene for me and i think that if you if anyone's uh, watched it at all they'll know exactly this is it's the um uh how many people can you jerk off in a room mm. scene which is that's like they brought in mathematicians to yep. give them the theory that would go into this kind of thing um great scene i love like the character has like a proper inspiration that 
becomes like the cornerstone of the technology that they're developing <laughs> but it's literally just about like if we win this competition I, like the only way we could win is if i jerked off everyone in the room it's like well you wouldn't have time it's like well let's work out how long it would take and it goes into like if you put your hands to the side and had like two dicks in each yeah. hand that were like point to point and you were going across i was like then i could do twice as many it's like but would the height of the people matter it's like well that, it's not the height the the foot to head height it's the foot to dick, dick height, height. <laughs> highly I recommend it. yeah it's great great show so back to the comic um mm. i got quite a few notes um some about the comic book itself some about the story because the, the, for all we're saying about the music inspirations and the generations and the video game aspects and all that it really does still come down to a um romance and a young love kind of story like yeah. at its core but i think it's told in a very unique way because it's told in the, un the aspect of young millennials at the time who are just kind of getting their own culture that yeah. they've got technology which makes things a little different as well um i don't think they have mobile phones or smart no. they definitely don't have smartphones i don't think they have cellular phones. so scott doesn't his roommate does and the, this the story is about <laughs> like yeah yeah but we're just starting to see them have phones and we're starting to see the internet become prominent. Um, yes. He gets an email. He's on Amazon.ca. That made me feel extremely <laughs> old. It's very noughties. And it's kind of, it's, it's the generation just before us. It's the older millennials. There would be people who were Scots age in their 20s in 2004 would now be in their mid 40s. So they're a bit older than us. They're the older millennials, aren't they? But it, it does speak to their experience. I, I definitely see some of my friend's older siblings in there. Yes. And we, we for frame of reference, we are uh, technically, I think, younger millennials. Mm. So the, 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 the younger end of millennials. So We this, were both born in the early 90s. Yes. And this is, very, this is still very uh, relatable for us as well, because mm. we remember this kind of time, even if we weren't as active because we were younger when it was happening, but we yeah. still remember it. At the core, it's um, about... A love story, love triangle mm. kind of thing. It's an interesting plot point that Scott is 23 and he's going out with a 17-year-old, which I, I don't know what side I'm on for that. Because it's, it yeah. it's highlighted in the thing. It's like, because his friends are like, oh, you're not taking advantage of you. And he's like, no, we haven't, like, we haven't done anything. Like, we're, we are uh, going slow. And His exact words were, I'm not a user. Yes, exactly. And yeah, I'm not sure. It is an odd age gap, I would say. And there's a thing with age gap where people always kind of reference like, oh, well, you know, people older, there was like 10 years apart or whatever, and it didn't matter. It's like, yeah, but this this threshold is when you, over this threshold, it's like two completely different people. In fact, when he's breaking up with the 17-year-old girl, she says exactly that. There's nine years between my parents. Exactly. I think the pivotal thing is that to an Anglo audience, you're like 17 and 23 is a bit gross, but it's legal. But what he's doing in Canada is, Pretty illegal, actually. Is it um, illegal? Is it like I don't want to get into like bloody age of consent or any well, of that. I'm bollocks. pretty sure their age of consent is 18. Right. Well, then, yeah, it would be. I mean, for anything to happen, would definitely be illegal. Then. Yeah, and so within the context of the rest of the characters who are all in their 20s, most of whom in kind of adult relationships at this point, they're all looking at Scott, going, "What are you up to, buddy?" Yeah. Um. And and that. But the thing, the sense I get from Scott is that he's a bit of a young soul, though. Oh yeah, well he's he the slacker is again the person in arrested development. Mm. Like they haven't they haven't grown to the age that they are. They're like mentally or responsibilities or anything really. 
because he doesn't even have a job. He is plays yeah. in the band, doesn't even have a job. <laughs> and these days, I don't know if it's the current like cost of living crisis that the entire globe seems to be experiencing right now, may or more especially in the UK for some reason. But the idea of someone being active in society and not living with their parents and not having a job is insane. Yeah, that wouldn't happen now, would it? No. The only the closest you get these days are drug dealers, and even yeah. they have jobs. Yeah, they're hardworking individuals. Yeah, they're they're industrious, they're <laughs> entrepreneurs, they're getting out there. Yeah, and absolutely. Applying their trade. <laughs> so that that's I th- I think maybe in the early noughties someone could ha- not have a job but still like move out with their parents and mooch off friends and stuff. Yeah. These days, like if you try to move in with friends without a job, they were like Am I supporting you now? Because yeah. I don't want a child to support yet. And Wallace is supporting him. He sleeps in Wallace's bed. Yes. There's that beautiful panel where they give you a full view of the apartment and they label everything. Yep. And anything that's useful is Wallace's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. And what's interesting as well is I'm I'm trying to save most of the film comparisons to, mm. to once we've done with the comic. But interestingly, the film... Uh, has their ages as 22 rather yeah. than 23. And I noticed that specifically because I think the film was like, let's rein it in a year, just get a little closer. And get the, a bit more yeah, palatable. Let's get in the five-year gap. Like, let's just get in there. And also they do some jokes and panels like exactly like the comic. And one of them is the apartment. So it literally pans yeah. the apartment, has all the same labels as the as the comic book panel does. So that's something I'll, I'll mention later when um, talking about the film, which we'll do as a little add-on at the end. Um, yeah, dialogue is Im- immediately realistic. It feels realistic from the start, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think I think there's a thing. This is a kind of larger conversation, but I think comic books have maintained a higher quality of storytelling than other more successful mediums, barring maybe books. Books, obviously, you know, <laughs> I think books has a fair enough advantage there. <laughs> but comic books, unlike say television, films, video games. I think the difference is that those in those mediums and industries have a lot more success and the more successful a medium is the more business people rather than artists get yeah. get higher up and that's when things get watered down and homogenized and that's why like people say oh there's no good films anymore it's like that's because it's successful like video games a lot of People in the video game industry say modern video games aren't as good as video games before. And again, that's that. That's a more, um, there's more money in it. So there's more money, there's more assholes in it who are chasing money rather than the art of the medium. I would argue that the same thing has happened in comic books, though. I think specifically superhero comics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I think is an important distinction. And that's the point I'm driving at is that actually anything once made for a large enough market you have to pander to the lowest common denominator. And I don't think this is pandering to the lowest common denominator. No, not at all. It's there's some, there's a phrase I've heard on a couple of podcasts I listened to recently, which is um, impenetrable banter. Yeah. So it's like inside jokes that if a new person comes to listen to and they're like, I have no idea what's going yeah. on. And everyone, and the people in the thing are just like using like shorthand and like yeah. they're laughing at references, which no one understands and things like that. Um, so this has a bit of element that in the way it tells the story and everything. Yeah, it's a bit fast in terms of the characters and oh, doesn't it move? Yeah, it's painted in quite broad strokes in that sense, isn't it? Yes, it, it moves fast with telling you who's who. It literally just gives you a label like here's who they know that kind of thing, and it does cheat a bit because like other mediums would be like 
hey, how's my favorite sister? Like, yeah, that, absolutely. Tell you who the what the relationship is. Whereas this is literally just has a label. But it's not cheap because it's making use of the medium in a really succinct way. Yeah, I mean, if you've got like comic books, the advantage use the advantage of the visual medium as well as the written medium. And something that happened, and it's a bit self-referential when. Um, Scott and Ramona are on their first date when they're walking in the snow and he she asks him about his ex-girlfriend and he says I think I'll save that for volume two yes that's a, a meta uh, quip and then she he asks about her last job and she says I don't want to talk about it and he says oh maybe that's one for volume three and they get to those things in volume two and three yeah um, and it's sort of you know it's 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 referencing the medium that it's in and I like that. I like when Fort meets function in that way. I find it really charming. I think when that originally happened in 2004, or the early noise, I think it was uh, more original then. And I think the success of titles like these has now made it almost a bit hack now to do it, if yeah. that makes sense. Um, like Deadpool, who is a favorite character of mine. I will admittedly say I think he's really beaten the dead horse of meta humor. And, and he's going to continue because there's another film coming out and that he's going to keep doing it. So I think that style of humor and storytelling, I think, is a bit worn now or at least requires a lot of innovation to make mm. it good again. But early noise, this was like, you'd read this back then. You'd be like, oh, wow, it's uh, referencing stuff. I think the difference is that it's a tool that he uses sparingly and occasionally. Whereas yeah. with Deadpool, it becomes a central observation of the book that Deadpool is aware that he's in a comic yeah, it's it's a it's a aspect of the character which yeah. if you did a Deadpool story and didn't include that, people would be like, "What's happening? Can't he yeah. do that anymore?" Like- and and this is the thing. And so when somebody actually uses a rhetorical device like that, but uses it for a purpose hmm. and uses it sparingly, I think it retains its impact. And I think it is impactful in this instance. Like I think it does work. Yeah, the fact that Scott and Ramona are kind of quietly aware of the fact that they're they're participating in a fiction yeah and it is a nice little like oh exactly that's fun yeah <laughs> uh one thing very early on in the first issue or first volume i'm not sure what the issue structure is because i've read i just read volumes it's volumes oh it's oh that's that's very interesting i think that's that's very noteworthy so each volume released as volume about a hundred 100 150 pages around that yeah so interesting release schedule for something like that definitely closer to the japanese manga release style and this is something that i was going to touch on yeah it looked like a japanese yes and so it, it wasn't released by. as a tall comic book it was released as a small novel sized book and it was originally black and white right the yeah. version that we see commonly reprinted online was a special edition for like the 10th anniversary or something that was printed in full color. Right. Originally it was a black and white comic. Sorry, originally it was a black and white comic mm. and it was printed to look like a manga. Are we still so so it's are we still classing it as a comic or a manga? Well, this is what interested me about it the first time round is that it looks like a manga, but it is a graphic novel that is so distinctly Canadian mm. that I think it I think it's um I think it defies genre in that sense. It does. Uh, it definitely does a bit. And even even compared to modern comics, I think it still defies genre. I yeah. don't know anything else that's like this. And I don't know if that's a lack of people being able to replicate the success of it. Or it's so niche that no one's 
you haven't had someone come about to try, if that makes sense. Yeah, as much as, as you were saying earlier, the speech patterns that are used in it have been replicated and defined a generation, the way it was presented didn't do that. Yeah. And people, they, you know, people pick and choose things like what to replicate in their own writings, obviously. Mm. So, so, you know, that's understandable. But in the first volume, near the beginning of the first volume, the only comic I've ever known to have a song played in the story yeah. and to give you not only the lyrics of the song, but also the notes, to, notes and chords to play it. Yeah, it just it, it, and, it, and the, way it, the way it prints those chords, that is a chord sheet. Right. And that would be instantly recognizable to somebody who learned to play guitar in the noughties. Because that is, if you went to like, um, uh, what is it? Uh, what was the website? Guitartabs.com or something? That sounds right. Like there, there was a place that you would go for guitar tabs and it would give you those little chord diagrams and then the lyrics with the chord that you were playing over the top of it. And so if you were somebody who learned to play guitar in the noughties, you would just from that panel be able to play that song. And I could pick that guitar up and play you that song right now. I mean, do you want it for the listeners? or uh, Should we do it at the end? All right, we'll do it, we'll okay. do it as an outro. Okay. <laughs> but, but be ready. <laughs> but tabulature was a big thing as well, because mm. tabulature was literally like, put your fingers here rather than here are notes and hope you can read music. Do you want to hear something really interesting? I mean, all, who? how long have you known <laughs> me? Come on. There, when the guitar first became an instrument, the idea was that you would go to the opera. It was like the 16th, 17th century. You would go to the opera and you would hear this beautiful music and you wouldn't be able to replicate it at home because you wouldn't be able to get access to a fucking harpsichord or a full orchestra. So the guitar became popular so that people could play those songs at home and people made songbooks where they would take little chunks of these operas, simplify them to fit them on a guitar neck and they were all represented as tab. People right. think that tablature is this thing that's like destroying guitar playing and making guitar, dumbing down guitar playing, but it is inherent in the instrument. It was like the first way that guitar music was distributed was as tab. Well, speaking as a non-musician, um, I've dabbled in bass guitar, much mm. like the main character of this, uh, of this comic. But for, to me, tablature is, um, do you want to just play the song yeah. and written music is do you want to understand music theory and why yeah it work why it's laid out as it is and why notes work together and that kind of stuff so if it purely depends on what you want out of playing do you yeah. just want to be able to play wonderwall or do you want to <laughs> do you want to understand why music's written the way it's written mm. um i do find it's an interesting subversion slightly that the main character is not the lead of his band because normally that is he the would thing. be yeah I, I think before this, if someone was, if a character was in a band, it was very much a, I'm the lead singer and I'm the lead yeah. guitarist and there's these bozos behind me and who cares about them? You know, that kind of. And attitude. when you get to issue two and he is starting, uh, what is their band called? Sonic and Knuckles. Yeah. He is the guitar player. Right. And when he gets to Sex Bomb, they're like, you're not a very good guitar player. You should play bass. And doesn't that just fit with Scott Pilgrim's character so well? Yes, not quite good enough to do, not quite good enough to go like out and out and be the best or something, but yeah. just good enough that he can join along with everyone else and what they're doing. Absolutely. Which makes a whole lot of sense. It definitely speaks to the slacker vibe of everything as well. Um, One second, I have a follow-on point. I just need to Google something. When Edgar Wright was directing the film, yep. Michael Sarah has been a bass player. Right. 
and there's footage of him on set when they're recording and they're all rehearsing together. They're all rehearsing together. Right. And Edgar Wright says, yeah, Michael Sarah was actually a bit too good <laughs> on bass to be Scott Pilgrim because Ed, he could already play. And so the rest of the actors were learning to play their instruments and he had all this time to just practice and hone his chops. And there was a point where Edgar Wright was like, he's too good. Like he's playing properly. <laughs> and if you watch Scott Pilgrim play bass, he plays it with a pick. Right. You'll know that that's kind of cheap. That's um, that's the the standard rock band bassist, isn't it? Well, it's it's the guitar player playing bass. If yes. you're a real bassist, for anybody who's not a musician, a real bassist will play finger with, walking. Yeah, they'll 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 play with their fingers. Um, look at Lee, Lee Geddy Lee's a great example. Yep. Any great bass player will be playing with their fingers. Not Scott Pilgrim. He's hammering that Rickenbacker with a pick. And that is also a bit of a punk thing, isn't it? The punk yeah. or, or use it because they because they didn't need a complex. It was and just a his stance with his knees together and the neck of the bass angled a bit downwards. That is very Elvis Costello, very kind of post punk new wave. Like the actual quality of the music wasn't really important. It was the vibe. It was the vibe, the the attitude, and the yeah. spirit. And doesn't that fit with Scott Pilgrim's character so beautifully? Well, that and the time, because this is p the post-punk era of rock. Because obviously the late, the 90s were the, the, well, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s were punk. And then 90s were grunge, which kind of had a Well, bit... I mean, punk was kind of 70s. And then the 80s, you had the new romantics and the post-punk. Right. And then the 90s was grunge, wasn't it? Yeah. And if you were in Britain, it was Britpop because we didn't get grunge. And yeah, and, <laughs> and Britpop was uh, musically the same level as like punk pretty much, wasn't it? Like simple chords and themes and stuff. Well, Britpop, Britpop was more of a callback to kind of 60s progressions. Mm. Like Oasis were trying to be the Beatles. Blur had a very kind of 60s, is it pop, is it rock kind of thing going on. Britain had a little kind of renaissance of 60s culture in I feel like that 90s. was mainly Oasis being like, we're the Beatles. Yeah. Well, yeah, they were Northern and they wore round sunglasses. So yeah. <laughs> I don't want to steal the joke, but there's a joke, a, a, a podcast I listened to, The Weekly Planet. I'm going to keep referencing them. The the guy, um, James, Mr. Sunday Movies, his, his impression. His the cat doesn't like that you stole the joke. Yeah, she, she, she's very high up on the intellectual theft and oh, IP. absolutely, yeah. No, if you try and steal her intellectual property. But the the joke the joke he does is basically um his impression of Oasis, and it's I hate my fucking brother, <laughs> and that's it. It's a good joke because it could be either of them. It could be either. Yeah, or. that is Oasis. But no, I just I just think that. You know, you know when you're watching TV or a film and they get the casting right and it really complements the character or if you happen to be into something. So if you were a watch person watching the Avengers and you see um, Tony Stark with a really nice Patek Philippe, which I believe is what he wears. I think he wears a Patek. You kind of go, oh, that's so cool that they nailed the thing I'm into and it complements the character because Tony Stark would have access some really fucking nice watches and it's the same here the fact that scott isn't the lead singer he's the bassist and the way he plays the bass and the kind of music they're making it just fits the character so well and i think it makes it more believable and more real i think this it speaks to this comic being so unique and specific in that it nails these 
particular niche um, interests um, and genres. And I think there's other comics that I can't name off the top of my head. There's other comics that probably nail other niche interests yeah, absolutely. so well that we might never know of because mm. we're not in those interests. But you, through music, found this one specifically. So I think that's that's an interesting take. It's when we were saying earlier, there's no comics like this one. But there might be in terms of their own ways. Mm. Do they do the same things as this comic, but about different interests that we might not touch on? Yeah, absolutely. I just, I just, I just felt that it really helped me buy that character. Mm. Did you also like that uh, they? There's a panel soon after that one where the layout of the lyrics and notes are around the panels. Yeah. So as they're playing the music and the panels are showing what's happening, the music it shows in a really unique, interesting way how the music is playing while the panels are happening. Yeah, absolutely. Which I thought, you know, that's exactly this whole thing, really. The characters use a lot of language from 2004, um, especially a lot of language that probably wouldn't be used in comics today, understandably. Oh, go on then. Well, there's it's definitely, like, there's definitely use of you know, mental, what's the um, mental derogatory terms and stuff like that, which at the time oh, was yeah. which at the time was very um i don't want to say accepted but it was you know no one cared as much about it and now yeah. obviously it's more of a touchy subject it's so. a word that you won't even say <laughs> i'm gonna i don't wanna like people know what i'm talking about i don't want to like alienate you know, you know what i mean like if someone's listening to it and they don't like it i'm like i don't like i don't want to use it i'll happily use cunt because like that's <laughs> that's to me like what like, like what we said back in why the last man it's it's inherently sexist that that word is considered worse than any other possible yeah. word for penis but we just don't want to get into outright ableism. Exactly. And again, I want this I want this podcast to be enjoyed by as many people as possible, hmm. mainly for money, because I'm <laughs> money-hungry capitalist, and that's the only reason. <laughs> it's the only reason we do this. Oh, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't touch this at all if I, there, there was nothing in it, obviously. Absolutely. We'd be doing this, but just we wouldn't bother recording it. We would have this exact conversation. Only would be drunk. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. For sure, 100%. The only I can't operate the podcast software <laughs> after drinking. Thinking, that's the only reason i'm not doing it now um we yeah language of 2004 uh, i'm just going through my notes um so the story I, another interesting thing with the whole slacker thing is it definitely doesn't um it doesn't uh what's the like it doesn't portray positively the slacker life no and more specifically the character of scott pilgrim is not portrayed as a good guy really he's not portrayed as a bad guy either but he's, he's definitely morally gray in, in a very normal sense there's a lot in him to identify with yeah don't think he is meant to be a wholly likable character no and he's he's not idealized in any way no to the point where his friends and people close to him constantly call out the stuff yeah. that he does wrong and uh, the stuff he's not doing um mainly it's he's with this 17 year old yeah. um and while he's with her he then starts pursuing ramona flowers yeah absolutely and that obviously his friends are like you need to break up with this girl if you're <laughs> going with this other one and everything so the friends around definitely call him out on the shit as he's doing it um, yeah and uh, like you said, it's not meant to be idealized, but it's definitely yeah. relatable. Even if you haven't been in this specific situation, I think the the idea of like being in a relationship and feel like you need to break up with the person or being the person who's broken up with, it gives you the other side. So it's definitely relatable. Yeah, to the extent that when Wallace meets Knives, he goes right into her ear and whispers, you're too good for him. And problem is, quipping it, the whole quippy dialogue, yeah. we take that as like a, ha ha, well, let's see if being over. It turns out, no, he was actually telling the truth. Yeah, absolutely. And then he refers to her as a sweet angel, which I think is lovely. 
Um, like there, there's this uh, Wallace. Wallace is an interesting character, isn't he? He's a great character. I especially like his portrayal in the film, which we'll get to later. But it's played yeah, by he's good um, in the film. Kieran McCulkin. I think Ke- uh, Kieran McCulkin is it? We call him McCulkin. Call it, it's so he's a McCulkin, but he's not the main. What was the main one? Uh, the Home Alone. Corley. Corley. Is it Corley? Was it McCulkin? Oh God, I'm uh, and I'm gonna look this up because that's gonna drive me slightly nuts. But he's, he's Corey McCulkin. Not Corey, I don't think, no. Um, I think it is Corey McCulkin. The Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin. I mm. never realized how difficult that name was to say. Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin is the main one, but he has a brother who I believe is called Kieran Culkin. Kieran Culkin is the one who, I don't know if he's brother or... Um, yeah, brother. So he's the brother, and he's the he's the one who kept pursuing acting. So he yeah. didn't he didn't peak as a child like Macaulay did, but he kept going. He's apparently on Succession, which is a really good um, TV show. Yeah. So, and he's great in the film as well. But we'll get to that later. I keep saying we'll get to the film later, but but we will. Um, I'm not going to let you talk about the film every time. I'm just going to talk over you. You're going to keep. I think you're going to run out of things to say. In all honesty, do you think I'll ever run out of things to say, Ryan? Not generally. I think on a specific <laughs> on a specific topic. I think. I don't know. Is uh, this a challenge? <laughs> I mean, don't, I mean, don't take it as such. Obviously, um, as the the line is Amazon that online bookstore is yeah. what made me think Christ we're old because again that's like such a like window in time of uh, of this kind of thing. Um, there's one p- panel which I found especially funny, which was young Neil crying. Yeah, oh bless him. But they call him young Neil, and that's obviously a reference. Yeah, yeah to Neil Young. If anyone's not old enough to know that, <laughs> especially um, again, Scott, very Canadian. Yes, exactly. Um, Scott refusing to. Um, that's it. Yeah. So in his interaction, in his pursuit of Ramona, one thing I thought was a bit weird as well, like with the age gap earlier, was. He orders something from Amazon because Ramona is the only Amazon delivery person in the entire, yeah, absolutely. entire Toronto, which is insane to just, think Well, nowadays. just the downtown area, and it's only because she's the best one. Yeah, but the fact there's one instead of a hundred <laughs> is insane yeah. by comparison. But he orders something from Amazon knowing it's going to be her delivering it, and then when she arrives and tries to give it to him, he's trying to chat her up, and at one point will not sign for the thing until she agrees to hang out with him later. Yeah. And that, I think the problem there is, it, that's one of the few things where, as a character, something he's done that should be criticized isn't, is not really acknowledged in the book as like, that's probably not something you should do mm. if, you're, if you're pursuing someone, you know? I think this, that kind of stuff, especially in the early noughties, there was that kind of like, oh, he's just being lovable kind of thing. But like, that's the thing where there's a kind of thought experiment these days where if you take the actions of someone like in a rom-com or something, if you put those actions onto a less attractive person yeah would they be would they be viewed the same way or not and i feel like if you were like a young girl a delivery uh, amazon delivery person and you're a young girl and you turn to a bloke's house and it's like a 40 year old fat balding man it's like yeah. i'm not gonna sign this until you agree to go out with me like that's what i did and i thought that's probably not the best so not in defense of that behavior um there's a reason that he's behaving that way but that is is that explicitly would you say it's explicitly uh, explained in the book why he does yeah that? she apologizes doesn't she what he, he says because she's been running through his mind all day 
Yeah, because I there's a that... subspace highway that goes through his brain. Yeah, so that's a weird line. I didn't know if that was her being like, I'm just going to like give him a weird response because I don't know how to... You know, I, it, that to me, and I might be wrong in my interpretation, that to me was like, she's uncomfortable and she's saying something weird to... Well, to get out of it but she's literally been going through his dreams holding packages so this is a thing this is a thing i was going to mention before is him seeing her in his dreams is that meant to be literally her going through his dreams yeah they have a conversation about it don't they because she says I... oh do you guys not have the subspace highways here in canada i wondered why they were so empty see i didn't know me being cynical i didn't know if the, we you know we're saying about this whole um millennial um quippy dialogue mm. i interpret that because he's he's the one who brings up first he says i had a dream about you yeah. or i saw you in my dream and i didn't know if that was her like um ad-libbing or you know like improvising just something funny on the spot because in response to someone saying i saw you in my dream but there's textual evidence isn't there because then she take uh, when they're in the on the snowy date yeah she goes through that door in the snow she, she drags him through that door in the snow and then they're yeah. back in the house. And I think that as well, I think I interpreted that initially as just a metaphor for them going back to hers. Oh, uh, no, I think that was... Well, I, I've always taken it very literally because those subspace highways that she moves through become quite prominent. I think that's, that is, I don't want to say a problem, but I'm seeing that now as if you take the things uh, metaphorically... He comes off not as good. Yeah. But if you take them literally, she's like, yeah, no, I, I went through your dream and now we're going to go through a, a magic doorway back to my house. Yeah. Like, then it's like completely understandable. Yeah. Because if I said to you, I was like, if we'd never met before and I was like, I saw you in my dream, you would be like, oh, it's a bit weird. Are but you tired, love? Because you've been running through my dreams all night. Exactly. <laughs> but also, if you had literally yeah. went through my dreams, you'd be like, yeah, no, I saw you. I was there. So when he sees her physically for the first time in the rec some kind of shop isn't it it's in the library he recognizes her because she has been going through his brain all day yeah so yeah no i i, I agree that actually that idea of like a pushy sexually aggressive man is gross mm. but i don't think that's what's happening here i think i'm I'm feeling like I mistakenly interpreted her one way when it was meant to be interpreted as another, potentially. I mean, that's valid. <laughs> but there is still there is still that very isolated, I won't sign for this until you yeah. agree to... That in itself is a bit weird. And I don't think it's malicious, Not by obviously not by the author, and I, not even by the character. I think it's a young man's mishandled yeah. way of, of, you know, flirting. But the problem is we are now a day and age where those mishandled mistaken social things we are now seeing how the other side react to it yeah absolutely and the detriment it can sometimes cause to the person on the other side even if it's meant with no ill intent or maliciousness or anything yeah so it's it's a kind of unique and again it's of its time like that that conversation was not being had in in the mainstream in the early noughties yeah no part, it wasn't was it part of why it's interesting to look at it now from today's view um, what other notes do I have? Um, <laughs> I also, I made a note. Walking into Ramona's room was weird, even if it worked. Ah, no, see that. And another point. That is weird. That's the one where he walks into her room and, and she's she, getting changed. And yeah. he's like, oh, sorry. It's like, what did you expect? Like, you <laughs> just walked into her room. Like, I don't know. That, the film, I think, does those, those points a little better. Yeah. Because the film, she says, if... Are you going to 
are you going to not sign this until I agree to go out with you? And in the film, he then takes it and signs it and gives it back to her. So in the film, they made a, 10 years later, they made a point of him being like, oh, I've signed it now. So you, you are now free to go. Yeah, but I am still asking if you would like to hang out. And again, with the room, he walks in and immediately closes his eyes. She's like, oh, sorry. And it's, whereas in the comic, I don't think he closes his eyes or anything, does he? He's just like, dude, I'm changing. What are you doing? Yeah. So I think that maybe comes off not as good again, mm. but, you know, open to interpretation. Um, that's another thing. Scott receiving the email from the first Evil X from Matthew before anything's even happened with Ramona. So yeah. what has he done? He's, he's attempted to talk to her at a party. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the first text is like, whoop, we got a live one. Like, send the email. Let's get going. So initially when I read that, I thought, well, that's weird. Why would they do that? But in hindsight, it seems like that's how the X's and the League of X's, as we later find out, how they set themselves up as a barrier for any new potential boyfriends. Mm. So, like, even if you just express the slightest bit of interest, it because we bang, like, you get the email exactly, and we <laughs> later find out from Gideon that that why it is they're able to find out about every expressed little bit of interest. But, um, but yeah, I thought that was odd at first, but yeah, it makes sense in hindsight. I do like the. I've got an email. We're gonna fight and fight to the death. And he's like, ah, this is boring. I'm just not gonna read it. It's like. That's the most millennial thing I've ever heard. It's, like, it's when he gets the letter and you start reading it and he goes, I guess I'm just not that interested in what this guy's selling. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the most millennial, like, ugh, post. Like, yeah, absolutely. Ugh, like, reading things. <laughs> ugh, I'm not interested. Uh, what else? Um, good foreshadowing of the Gideon character, who obviously becomes most important in, I'm guessing, the last volume, or at least the second to last volume. He be yeah, he becomes progressively more important in the story yep and if spoilers for the ending if you know it's been out for ages so i'm not that, that bothered about spoilers but he is the last evil x and he's like the the boss who was behind it all kind he's of. the bbeg the big boss big bad evil guy yes exactly um D, D parlance for you there is that is that just D, &D or is that originated from D, D? Yeah. The big boss is like the the video game aspect. Yeah, you'd yeah, when you're when you're playing D and D, you'll always go you'll always be kind of second guessing going, Is that the BBEG? The character we just met, is that the is that the big bad evil guy? Is that is that him? Not to <laughs> not to be confused with is that is that the BBC? <laughs> the British Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> I'm going to write the BBC into my next D&D campaign just for you. <laughs> so thank you. I feel honoured. Uh, weird line from Scott Elyon um, when he's trying to break up with Knives and he says, um, are you even allowed to date outside of your race? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Which I think is one of those things that he's, again, an ill attempt of like, here's reasons why we shouldn't be together. And, but, I don't know, like, I assume Knives is meant to be a second generation immigrant by the sounds of how she talks about her parents. Might be yeah. that might be wrong. I don't know. I'm I'm gleaming that from small so, clues. Well we see so we see her mum on the bus and she speaks clipped English. And then Knives mentions the parade of Chinese boys that her mum is introducing her to from good families. Right. And so it's again, it's one of those things that doesn't play great now, but it does have a textual root right it's something that knives has said to him that he is plucking out of the air to try and soften that breakup that breakup by the way made me feel all of the things yeah yeah it, the it, way it was drawn just the panels 
watching her fade to black and white and get smaller in the distance as she is crushed. Mm. Even talking about it now reminds me of every breakup I've ever had. It's very good visual storytelling. Yeah, it's excellent, isn't it? And one interesting thing of note is... This is one of the few tiles we've done, uh, uh, the only other one I think of being Mouse, where it's written and drawn by one person. And yeah. I think what we're seeing with this as well as Mouse is we're seeing the um, symbiosis of, uh, gosh word, um, the symbiosis of the art and the storytelling more working in tandem than if it was one, the people doing one or the other. I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah, there, there is there is a... Yeah, you're right. Mm. I, I completely agree with you. There's something happening here where the visual language is meeting the writing on the page in a very, very good way. And it's rare to, uh, I think, like, writer drawers are rare because what are the odds that someone would be good at both? And these are, like, the few examples of people mm. being really good at that. So, so, and this is a great example of that. Um, one thing I noticed is Wallace is constantly referred to as the gay roommate or something like that. Which now is like, why you can't see yeah. <laughs> referencing that? But at the time, 2004, that was progression. Because that was yeah. like celebrating like, hey, it's a gay character. And like, look how cool he is. And he is quite consciously made to be the most together person. Yes. In that friendship group. he He's always giving the good advice. Yeah. And he's not the one that they're like slacking off and hanging out with. He is presumably at work. While a lot of what happens, happens. Yeah. He's presumably busy living his adult life. He gives a good advice while not necessarily following it himself, for his own self. But that's a very kind of like, do as I say, not as I do kind of Ooh, attitude. At the gig. Yes. At the rock pit on the Wednesday where he's just sucking face with um, Scott's sister's boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> and there's a, I don't know if it's in the comic, but it's in, it's in the film where, um, the, um, as Ramona's leaving, he says, um, hey, bye, um, Scott's sister. Bye, uh, you you guys are oh, your two gay friends. And Scott's sister's like, two gay friends? What? And it looks, sees her boyfriend <laughs> getting off with what? It's like, wow, that's not again. <laughs> Which is a good bit. Um, but yeah, that's, that was progression for 2004. Um, there's a good note, again, referencing the, the slacker Arrested Development, where someone says, if you're under 23, ask a grown-up to help you out. Yes. And that is how it feels at 23. Whereas, when they're making the pies. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is how it feels at that age, where you're like, I'm technically a grown-up, but yeah. I don't feel it. And that, again, that was unique to the uh, to the 90s and noughties, wasn't it? It was yeah. that you were technically a grown-up, but you hadn't done... You're not taking on the responsibilities of a grown-up, or and these didn't are, feel like that. These are the ones that were left. Because, so they're all kind of from toronto um none of them went to college which in canada and america didn't is... scott go to college no or university i thought he he met um his ex there uh envy i thought that was college oh was that college i think that was college yeah oh uh, okay because they met they meet in school don't they yeah she's his she's the blonde one who he's friends with in school right uh i think in high school he meets kim and another girl um, who I can't remember who that turns out to be, Kim and someone else. I can't remember who the blonde goes, but Envy, I think it was the redhead in college. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, you're mm. absolutely right. But I right. think that speaks to something where they went to college, 
and is now still unemployed or not doing great jobs. They've come back with none of the prerequisite life skills. And I, that was the generation. That was yeah. the generation who were told in unity, you all need to go to college university yeah. and then you'll have a good life. And they went. And then afterwards it was like, what do I do with this Where's now? Where's this good life? Exactly. And I experienced some of that. I did not. I was smart. I didn't go to college. <laughs> yeah, I went to university and came back and was like, what now? I just um, did that from high school. I was mm. like, what now? And then just kept going like that till today, um, till right this moment. Um, there, one surprisingly actually progressive thing for 2004 is the vegan dinner that they are making. If in yeah. the noughties, if you said you were making a vegan dinner, people would be like, have you joined a cult? That was even how veganism... Now, even now in certain circles. Certain circles, but mainstream vegan is far more popular and accepted nowadays i mean you've mm. got like the i mean when they when greg's released the vegan sausage roll that was the you've made it to the big time now kind of thing for our non-anglo audience greg's is a pastry shop in the uk um they are everywhere much more dense in the north they last 10 years they became prevalent in the south yeah and they make a product called a sausage roll which is sausage meat in pastry. Do the Americans know what sausage rolls? Do they have sausage rolls? They call them sausage rolls. Like, they, the Americans say it funny. Mm. I, can't, I can't explain to you the way in which Americans pronounce sausage roll wrong, but they do. They make it one word instead of two. Right. They call it like a sausage roll, and it's very, it's very jarring to me. And um, they don't really have them, but it's essentially sausage with puff pastry around it. There's a podcast I listened to recently, and a guy on there was pointing out how the Americans pronounce World Cup mm. and the difference. So here in the UK, we say the World Cup, because the emphasis on the world part, it's the World Cup. And Americans, they say, when whenever they reference it, they say World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. Like the main part's the cup, or yeah. it's just one word. <laughs> like well, you, win a, you win a World Cup. Like, yeah, and, whereas, this, and, this, and this is the thing, like hearing Americans talk about sausage rolls is very jarring to me. Because they are an integral part of the fabric of British society. Yes. They built the country essentially off uh, sausage rolls or at the very least pasties. Sausage rolls and racism, I think. And pasties. Come on. And well, yeah, but you know, there's a lot of um, regional variance with a pasty, whereas a sausage roll is a sausage roll. Yeah, but that's why I'm saying just pasties under the umbrella of just pasties. What's your favorite pasty? I'm not a pasty guy. I'm a sausage roll guy. Like, of the choice, I'll always get sausage roll. But I acknowledge the importance of pasties, even if they're not primary for myself. So I'm fat, and I get a steak bake and a sausage roll. <laughs> <laughs> you just love them both equally. You can't. It's like choosing a favourite child. Oh God, I was vegetarian for so long, Ryan, and I've rediscovered meat recently. It's been awful. Yes. I mean, you could go, like, where this conversation started, you could go with the vegan sausage roll from Greg's. Sometimes I still do, because I A-B'd them the other day. Mm. I got a vegan sausage roll and a sausage roll and enjoyed both equally they were both a delicious treat yeah they're both they're both very good that i shamefully consumed in my car <laughs> <laughs> imagine you sitting in a car park and someone's like jamie what are you doing it's like get, get away don't look at me that's exactly how it went i'm ashamed <laughs> with two sausage rolls simultaneously being eaten Oh, uh, what a tangent. Um, yeah, the fact they're making a vegan dinner in 2004. Like, yeah. If I, when I lived in 2004, if someone said, we're making a vegan dinner, my first question would be, why? I'm going to go home and eat my mum's meatloaf or whatever. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm not going to have any thanks. Yeah. Whereas today, a bit more enlightened, a bit older, and just the, the attitudes as a whole, I'd be like, I'll give it a try. If something's good, then it's good. It doesn't matter if it's yeah, no, meat if somebody, or veggie or whatever. If somebody put a plate of food in front of me and said it was vegan, I'd be like, cool. 
I think in in the noughties, we'd only just accepted vegetarian, whereas at that point, it's like, also, I don't eat milk or eggs or anything else. I'd be like, oh, buddy, hang on. I've, I've only just accepted vegetarian. Give me a minute. Yeah, yeah, I've only just accepted that I have to remove the meat. Are you saying you can't have any eggs now? What the fuck is going on? That, the attitude at the time then was definitely just go out to the garden, eat some grass. Yeah. Like, if that's how you're going to be. But I suppose, and, and and this is the other thing, isn't it? The, the slacker, whilst they were a bit useless, that character trope would often have their finger on the pulse of what was cool yes so even though they didn't know how to hold down a job they knew that people were vegan and let's be inclusive they put the extra effort in these some areas but not into like improving their own life if that made sense isn't that interesting that once you're not focusing on survival and work you have a bit more headspace to consider other things like veganism i mean you're getting a bit communist bit too communist here for me for my liking i think comrade 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 <laughs> just from that response you can tell that one of us works in finance and the other one works in social care oh yeah. i mean that's my ready response for any kind of that not not that we're getting into jobs because we don't want to be you know the tax man and all that we don't want to be found out yeah absolutely we're both unemployed slackers this is the only thing we do hey, oh mate if it's the only thing we do we'd be doing 10 podcasts a day just on whatever we thought whatever we thought was interesting at the time um what other notes do I have? Um, it's weird seeing that this time period, they have some of the technology, but not all. So and doesn't it date it? Yeah, so it, it dates it so specifically. Because if, yeah. if there's no computers, it could be literally 80s onwards. But because there's computers and like flip phones, but no smartphones, that's like such a specific time it takes place in. And the fact that owning a phone wasn't a prerequisite to a normal life, Scott mm. doesn't have a phone. Scott uses Wallace's cell phone. Yeah. And Wallace's phone was kind of seen as a luxury. And yeah, it dates it to the noughties. Yeah. It makes it feel like the noughties. And do you know what? Makes me miss the noughties a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a more innocent time. Um, oh, there's... I love my smartphone, but my God, does it have a handle on me? And I think once you introduce modern day technology into a story, you're so much more limited on plot. Because the idea that two characters don't know, the idea that two tarak two characters, <laughs> we're cutting that out. Nah, nah, nah we'll leave that in there. Um, the idea that two characters could be unaware of each other's goings on is now implausible because it's implied that a character in something written in 2023 would have a smartphone. I wouldn't say it limits storytelling; it, it definitely changes it because there's obviously some things you can't do anymore, like like horror films when someone was stuck in a cabin in the woods they'd be like you'd have to be like oh i know i've got no signal or internet or 4g like yeah. that's why it's scary <laughs> but there are now added ways of of storytelling of of um, relationships between characters mm. of relationship between characters which they show through um like text exchange and like there's now uh, there's now added aspects like being left on red is now a a signifier yeah. of characters reactions to each other and although don't you find it homogenous where any scene that is a text exchange between two people who are like engaged in the early stages of a relationship like scott and ramona is just two people snuggled up in separate beds and you're seeing screen caps of the messaging app and it never looks quite right because they're not allowed to use the branded ones yeah and i just think oh a conversation in a coffee shop would have been so much more beautiful 
Yeah, but it has to reflect the mod. Like, if you are choosing to set in modern day, then you do you, you do have additional ways of storytelling. They're just different, I think. Yeah, and I get where you like. There's a we're always going to have a fondness for like the remember the good old days and all that. But I, it doesn't mean I don't think you're limited. I think there's just different ways. That's that's just my perspective. There's a funny thing of there's a meme going around of the a uh, uh, guy and a girl messaging while they're in bed, like from separate rooms. Yeah, and the guy's like. Oh, I had a really great time to you today, and uh, yeah, I really like you. And the girl's like, she writes back, "Ah, oh, thank you so much," but she abbreviates it, so it's A W W T Y S M. She says that like, "Oh, thank you so much for that." And he reads it back. He goes, "Autism." <laughs> <laughs> it's such a dumb joke, but it's a dumb joke, but I like it. I mean, that is autism. And he's like, how did she know? <laughs> and that's an example of great storytelling that could be done through text. Absolutely. Plus, I just... plus, you can't break out an eggplant in a conversation at a coffee shop. Eggplant, peach, <sighs> droplet, emoji. Well, not now that everybody has a smartphone. Back in the day, you could have fronted that one out. <laughs> Back in the day, we had to buy an eggplant from the <laughs> shop, and we had to bring it around, and we had to be like, what do you think of this? <laughs> Back in those days. Yeah, the sale of eggplants has gone through the floor. The one thing I thought was very interesting, and I think this is a good, um, an interesting point on my, you know, like when you're, uh, what's the word when you're like reading something and you're like making observations or, you know, you, you, you should know this when you're, you're making observations. When I'm you're gonna, reading. I'm just going to keep saying <laughs> You know when you give I don't have a fucking Scooby what you're trying to say. When you're given a book in school and you're like, who has some thoughts about analyzing? Analyzing. A text. Yeah, I don't know the word analyzing, obviously. So my amazing analysis that I gleaned <laughs> from from perusing this title was uh the concept of everyone's exes being evil, I think is a a young person's immature mm. attitude towards relationships. And I think that's a good metaphor of the, of the book entirely. Demonizing your exes. Yeah, because when you're at that age, you you suddenly have strong feelings for a person and you explore them and you become connected and then it ends. Those early breakups are, you know, emotional and you don't know how to handle them and they're short-lived, but you're like, we were going to be together forever and yeah. all that. Um, so I think the... The idea of villainizing your exes is that how you cope at that yeah. age. Because there's a lot of like, oh yeah, we were really close, but then like she was she became a bitch or the guy or like oh he became like an asshole and she was fucking crazy, bro. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think that's that speaks to this. But I think what's interesting here is that because so many of the men are stunted and they're in that state of arrested development, they're kind of playing into it. Well, it's played up, I think, for the plot of the book and of making like a video game, you know, bosses at the end of levels, that kind of thing. Yeah, but we have to read the characters as they present. Yeah. And I think to be fair, I think they are a metaphor for running into an old ex. Mm. And like, if it wasn't, if there was none of like the video game um, boss fight aspects, I think it would be them running into an ex. I think it'd be them running into an ex and uh, the ex being like, Oh, who's this guy with no like oh, mm. oh, not as good as me like that kind of attitude whereas now it's we must fight to the death like that kind of thing <laughs> which again it's a it's a good metaphor for i think a real life thing a have real you life not aspect. fought any of your partner's exes to the death 
I mean, luckily not. I don't feel like, I don't know how leveled up I am and whether I'd actually be any good or not. Because that's the thing, Scott's good at fighting from the start. Scott's the best fighter in the province. And that's crazy. <laughs> that just comes out of nowhere. Because like, you wouldn't think it looking at the character beforehand. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? It's sort of, it's not explained why he's so good at fighting. But everyone acknowledges and is aware of the fact that Scott's really handy in a fight. Well, they barely acknowledge it. It's not viewed as like Scott is good at fighting. It's you have to fight this person and then they fight and he wins. And they go, wait, Scott won. And I... No, there's a point. There's a point where Kim literally says, doesn't he know Scott's the best fighter in the province? Okay, right. Fair enough, I missed that. It's explicitly stated by Kim that, yeah, Scott is a really good fighter. See, the route I was going to go down was I was going to say it's similar to how in video games you play as a character and then all of a sudden you're fighting and there's no like explanation for why they can fight. Yeah. And I, I was going to draw that comparison. But if he's the best fighter in the province, then... Well, this is the thing. It's acknowledged that he's the best fighter in the province, but we're never given a really good reason for why. Right. Like, you see it when Similar goes, to a video game. Yeah, when, you, when, you go to, when he goes to his secondary school and he's in that uniform and he gets bullied... And he just beats the crap out of the three bullies. Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, no, Scott Pilgrim just knows how to throw down. And but also Ramona happened to have Alexis who also can fight. Yeah, absolutely. And Ramona can throw down as well. Oh yeah, that's a great part. That's a great part as well. Um I like the the Scott's ex that comes into as well. Yeah. Her name is Envy. And yeah. her, she literally says, I'm jealous of you and your new girlfriend. Yeah. And it plays into that whole thing. Bit on the nose, but, you know, it's it still works with the context of, you know, everything that's happening. Um, I like that uh, one of Ramona's exes is has psychic powers from being vegan, which we should have mentioned earlier, the whole vegan Which talk. he loses because he eats cheese. Well, not even not even that. The, it's ice cream, isn't it? Well, not even that. It's, it's not what he eats. It's the f- He doesn't lose it from, from eating non-vegan stuff. He loses it because the vegan organization finds out. Yeah. So it's not powers you get from just being vegan. It's you be vegan. And then the vegan organization is like, we will bestow powers on you for being (laughs) vegan. And then they find out and they retract the powers. And I love how consistent it is with the way that vegans are currently viewed in culture. The vegan police. Yes. You know, (laughs) like nobody has ever liked vegans. I do like uh, how the film portrays that because in the film, he... Scott tricks the character. So the fight with that ex, that's actually where the film and the comics actually start to diverge. Yeah, absolutely. The first hour of the comic, it actually... Hour of the film. First, sorry. The first hour of the film, <laughs> almost exactly scene for scene, portrays yeah. the volume one and volume two. Volume three is the fight with the third ex, and that's where they start condensing things to fit in the film. And I think that's interesting because like volume one and two is all like set up for the main yeah. story. So they use all of that. And then when you get to three, it's like, we'll leave, we're going to leave a bunch of stuff out. This is when we get to on, on to talking about the film. I don't like the film. I, don't I think, really like the film. I don't think it's that well paced. And that's, and you've hit upon my exact issue with the film is that it's really poorly paced. I think there's a difference here is because you read the comic first. Is that right? I did, yeah. I think you read the comic first. And I think this is a larger problem with adaptations of comics. Yeah. Although, I think in the way the film is paced, (laughs) this was a perfect place for Edgar Wright to start developing the style that we see in the Cornetto trilogy. Yes. I think he'd already done Shaun of the Dead by this point. Had he? Let's find out. For me, um, the film film does a good job of condensing the third ex-boyfriend fight, because in the comic it happens over almost like three scenarios. Yeah. 
and like there's a middle one where they run through a shop and it's like a canadian reference to the specific shop that's only in canada and i think they take that out for the benefit because it just it could be taken out it didn't need to be in there yeah and so rather than happening over three situations it is the one fight yeah and the whole vegan aspect as much of a joke it is is a kind of plot point over those three scenarios whereas the film condenses it by in the fight scott realizing that his powers come from being vegan he goes oh when you have some of this drink that i put um soy milk in he's like Ah, I, I can read your mind. I know you've put half and half that, so I'm going to have the other drink. And then Scott's like, I actually put half and half in both of them, but I thought really hard about only putting it in that cup. And I think that's a smart condensation of yeah. the of the um, a smart abbreviation of the of the longer volume. They just condense yeah. it into almost like a ten minute bit, but it still works. It still hits all the beats, and I think that's smarter because. Scott doesn't trick him like that in the comic. No. And in the film, that actually gives Scott a bit more of like, yeah, he can fight, but he, he's also smart and he can trick someone in a scenario. And it's the intelligence that Scott starts to... Abs- Scott starts to learn from Ramona. And I think something that we haven't talked about yet is the trope of the manic pixie drink girl. Yes. Which, which we have to talk about here. That, that I think, was started... Uh, it's more commonly referred to as starting in the film 500 Days of Summer, the Jordan, yeah. Go- Jordan, Gordon, Joseph, Levitt, and... Jordan, yeah, Jordan, Jordan, Gordon, Gordon, Joseph, Levitt. Gordon, Joseph, Levitt. Yeah. And I can't remember her name. She was New Girl. Um, she played Jess New Girl. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, she... Ooh, Zoe Deschanel. Zoe Deschanel, yes. Um, so Zoe Deschanel, a lot of people credit as being like the first main... Um, pixie dream girl yeah although it's it's a trope that has existed in young adult fiction for a while right that's interesting because i only know about obviously from when it became popular in film so when do you have an gauge of when it started in in fiction i would say late 90s no late 90s noughties um and i suppose the key the key element of a manic pixie dream girl is that it's not a great character trope because it distills a female character to what a man can draw from her. Yes, yeah, so what what she can offer the man in his life and his quest and everything. And whilst Ramona has her issues, Ramona has really adult problems. And they are condensed to almost point of of not being as central in the film. They're definitely removed somewhat. Yeah. She's more of a, I won't say a perfect character, but she's... She's more of an idealized character. She's more of a manic pixie dream girl in the film. Yes, she's sure. a she's a more she's a more rounded character in the book, and she has these really adult problems. And she had a very adult relationship with Gideon. Um, you know, it would appear that she was cohabiting with him. Yeah, in a way that a lot of the characters aren't really. Um, but I think what's interesting here is that a lot of what we see of Ramona is what Scott can draw from her. Yeah, what she offers the main character rather than being her own three-dimensional character yeah exactly and i and i think on some level um a lot of people would argue that's a bit problematic actually i think it it, once it got overdone so much that people started to notice like hey why don't we give some like real issues and characteristic traits to this to this other character in the story rather than just the male protagonist and ramona's kind of idealized here in the film, more so even than the comic, I would agree. Yeah, she's she's idealized a little bit, 
She certainly has her shit together more than any of the other characters, doesn't she? Other than maybe Wallace. I mean, she has a job for one thing, so that's <laughs> put her well leagues above bloody Scott. Yeah. Um, what two interesting things? I searched Five Hundred Days of Summer to see when it came out. It came out in two thousand and nine. So of the films, it's even three years before the Scott Pilgrim film. Mm. So definitely, I think um, started in film the manic pixie dream girl. I might be like. If you're listening, feel free to write in yeah. however you can, you know, give us some other examples. The other thing is I searched 500 Days of Summer and, you know, it has like people also ask on Google. And the top one is, what was the actual point of 500 Days of Summer? <laughs> <laughs> some, a lot of people have sat through, sat through the film and it ended. They went, what was the point of that? Yeah. <laughs> like, as you should after a film. Um, A really good example of a character that kind of starts to get you towards the Manic Pixie Dream Girl from fiction is Alaska from Looking for Alaska by John Green. I do not know that at all. So John Green is a name you'll probably be familiar with. He's um, the started YouTuber. Start off YouTuber. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so Looking for Alaska was published in 2005. Um, it's based on his time at his boarding school. Hmm. But there's this really strong female character and what we see from her is what the protagonist can draw from her. And I think what John was doing there was very aptly um, portraying his adolescent understanding of romantic attachment. And that was idealizing a girl rather than getting to know the person. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be fair to John, um, he wasn't doing that in an unknowing way. It was a very knowing choice that he made, and Miles, the protagonist, we're conscious of the, of the fact that he's doing that. But I think that trope exists here to some extent, right? I think, I think, I think the trope of the manic pixie dream girl does exist here. But I mean, even as in as much as that interaction we talked about earlier, where she's at the door just trying to do her job, and Scott's kind of, for better or worse, he is transfixed on her. Yeah. Um, because she's been running through his dreams and it's kind of, there's this element of shell shock and all he's really seeing from that interaction is the thing that he wants from her. Yeah, it's just an interesting looking girl. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, I think there's an element of that, but again, it's of its time. It's from the period where that character trope was really starting to be explored, the mid-noughties. Mm. And so it's very much of its time in that as well. I think there's an element of, you can forgive it somewhat in the sense that it is Scott's story. Like his name is literally the title. So from his perspective, she is going to appear idealized and everything. Yeah. I think the larger conversation then comes to why there's so many male centric stories about how they view women. Yeah. And that became a large show of like, you know, can we get both aspects or can we get female aspects of this interaction? And, you know, what they get out of it and their trials and tribulations. And if we look at some rom-coms of the 90s and noughties... They are horrendous. Yeah, no, the way that women perceive men isn't great there either. But if I they're think... even allowed to have their perception <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, yeah, it's synonymous of the time, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And the, the noughties, I think they were starting to change what the idealised girl was, but mainstream-wise, we weren't quite at the level of actually um, actually deconstructing the female characters as actual characters and people. Yeah, I think Ramona Flowers would be seen as quirky. Yeah, and she's she's more of a significant, albeit, plot point than a character. Yeah, and the fact that she's seen as quirky is almost kind of 
it diminishes her character. It yes. diminishes the specifics of her character and distills it down to, oh, she's a woman who has interests, therefore she is quirky. Yes. It's not just a woman with interests, like all women. And also, Scott, for all his faults that are shown, and even the ones that we've discussed, and whether they are good or not, the fact that he's had faults at all makes him more uh, dimensional than her. Like, if yeah. you give a character faults and problems and, you know, not always doing the right thing at the right time, that makes him more interesting and relatable as a character. Ramona is, I don't think anyone would relate to Ramona because it's like, unless you just relate to being the 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 uh, object of affection for guys like Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. And I, I really identified with Scott. Yeah. As, a, as, you know, as a man in his early 20s reading this, I was like, I see some of myself in there and it wasn't a great mirror to look into. But there was certainly something in his Picadillos to identify with, wasn't there? Because he's the most well-written character. And he's yeah. the title character, so that is understandable. Yeah. Um, the last few notes I've got, one is um, when they're dealing with Envy, who is Scott's ex. Yeah. The Ramona is very understanding of Scott still being hung up on his yeah. ex in the breakup. But then I know it, that's pretty understandable considering her situation. The fact that she's got a league of exes who fight any new boyfriend is like, <laughs> I think she's, you know, you can, you can be a bit understanding when it comes to his normal scenario. Yeah. Uh, the only other note I've got, the last note I've got is actually from the film. So I did watch a little bit past where we were in the comic. I got yeah. to her fight, her fight with her female ex. Yes. Yeah. And I just noted down those two lines that I particularly liked. One was when Scott works out that this woman is yeah. an ex of Ramona's, um, that she goes, oh, it's just a phase. I was bi-curious. And her ex goes, yeah, well, I'm bi-furious. <laughs> like, that's great. That's a great line. Like, you can rarely, you, it's only specifically usable, but it's very good. And the other one was, as an insult to Ramona, her ex calls her a has-been. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> amazing wordplay. I think that's all we've, Oh, that's all I've got, unless you've got anything else you want to reference or talk about at all. I think we've done we've done a decent time, so I think we've... For only having done essentially the first three volumes, I'll say, I think we've done a good job. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, Ultimately, the end, of the, the end of the line is, highly recommend if you're of our age. If you're younger than us, you might get something out of it, um, but you might already have... If you're into comics younger you probably have your modern titles that already cater to a lot of these things i feel like for the zoomers it will be a lovely little look into what the noughties was like that's really good actually if you're a zoomer and you want a time capsule yeah. to 2004 this is highly recommended for that because it really did upset me post brexit that they took us took away the subspace highways they were so convenient for getting about ryan yeah and then they shut down all those uh you know that was it the uh, jungle canyon rope bridges I know. How do I even get about these days? That's such a... If, we're not going to say where that's from. <laughs> if you know where that's from, you're one of us. But you, don't don't Google it. Just yes, just write in yes or no. I know about the Jungle Canyon rope bridges. Um, that's all. So I think it's time. That is time. To yep. say goodbye. So if you'd like to see my witty observations on the world, um, you can come to Byronic Monkeys on TikTok, which is something I'm still doing. I would say I would recommend if you can get those on youtube shorts as well because there's a whole global political situation which i would not be surprised if tiktok was affected by that in some way 
YouTube Shorts seems to be YouTube's version of them competing oh, with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So is. if you can, like I was going to say this before, get on YouTube Shorts if you can. Uh, we're going to have our animated clips once they're ready. We're going to have those on the, the YouTube Shorts as well as, uh, as, well as TikTok. Um, we've got a few lined up in terms of like we've selected parts from previous episodes, which I think are going to be good. We're going to commission an animator and we're going to get them out in the world and hopefully get some more eyes and ears but really just ears because there's no visual medium on <laughs> eyes on the at clips ears on the podcast thanks bye well, oh fucking and go to youtube no no you well that as well <laughs> <laughs> but we are expecting a musical outro oh yeah right i'm gonna get it up and i'm gonna see if we can i'll be able to work it out all right, so for the outro, one of the few times uh, that this will be happening on the podcast, because for obvious reasons, we will be outroing with the musical stylings of the gregarious, personable, extroverted Jamie. <laughs> Take it away. I can't be sure, but I heard you crawl through the door. Didn't say a word, and I think I tried to go to bed, but instead you went to the floor and you've been out drinking with the other boys again telling them we're only friends thank you goodbye (laughs) thank you wisconsin